Well, by day, she is the pretty but shy Selena Kyle. By night, when Selena goes hunting for expensive jewelry and priceless art to steal from the rich, she puts on her black tights and her mask and her crafty persona of Catwoman. Of course, Catwoman is most well known for her love interest. Uh, Her love interest is, of course, Batman. So by day, Selena Kyle dates the billionaire Bruce Wayne, and by night, she cheats on her boyfriend Bruce Wayne with Batman, who is Bruce Wayne. Uh, So, of course, this creates all sorts of interesting nocturnal tensions. Technically, Batman and Catwoman are enemies, right? Uh, But their relationship is way more complicated than that. Yes, she's a cat burglar, and steals jewelry and art, which makes her a criminal. And Batman is a crime fighter, and so he is dedicated to subduing criminals. Uh, So that makes them enemies. And yet, Batman cannot help but be irresistibly attracted to this mysterious and beautiful lady of the night. Now, what makes Catwoman such an endearing villain is that uh, while she intellectually spars with Batman and emotionally flirts with him and even physically attacks him, At times, she's never violent, Uh, she's never dangerous or evil. Her weapons are not explosives or bullets, but a whip and vials of sleeping gas and bowlers for tying up her victims. The one sticking point in their relationship, besides, of course, their lies and the occasional fistfight that they have, is that there's a secret that Batman won't reveal to Catwoman. Uh, The secret is, of course, their alter egos, their by-day identities. Um, Selina does not know that Bruce Wayne is Batman, but Bruce Wayne does know that Selina Kyle is Catwoman. And so uh, throughout the comics, this always gives an interesting dramatic irony that the reader knows and Batman knows that actually Catwoman is cheating on her boyfriend, but he doesn't mind because she's cheating on him with him as it were. And so there's an ongoing debate among comic nerds. I'm not one of them. I've just read about this. Uh, What would happen in their relationship if they actually uh, revealed their secrets to one another? What if Batman told Catwoman that he is, in fact, Bruce Wayne and shared that secret with her? Would this bring them closer as a couple or would it drive them apart and cause more trouble? And to find the answer, we're going to look in the Bible tonight. So turn in your Bibles to the days that the judges ruled Israel, Judges chapter 16. You'll remember the context here. Uh, Samson is a judge, meaning that he is a uh, kind of a a freedom fighter type figure that God has raised up to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. The Philistines have now occupied the western part of Israel, and Israel, for the first time in the, the downward spiral of the judges, has not called out to God for help and deliverance. They're just stewing in their sin. They're fine serving their new masters, the Philistines. And so God initiates by sending an angel to Manoah's wife and to Manoah, saying that their child is going to be very special. He's going to be set apart from the womb to be a Nazarite. He would have a vow, a vow that sets him apart for special service. What the special service is, is that he is going to be the one that begins to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And so, you know, the Nazarite vow involves not eating any unclean food. 
uh, not touching a dead body or even being near a dead body, um, and not ever drinking any alcohol, specifically wine and strong drink, and then not cutting your hair. So other famous Nazarites in the Bible would include John the Baptist, and even Samuel had a Nazarite vow at a time. So here you have the Samson with his long hair, and part of the long hair, which is going to be key in our story tonight, is that it was to make him different from the Philistines. Philistines, what we know from history, is that this was a nation of men who kept their hair cropped short, as you can see in the murals in various museums. Okay, so that's where we find ourselves. Uh, Samson grows up when he's a young man. Let's put him in his, let's say, in his uh, late teens, early 20s. He tries to marry one of the Philistines. He's supposed to be wiping out the Philistines, but he falls in love with the Philistine. Actually, he falls in lust with her. And um, she is good. She looks good to me. Go get her as a wife. And so this starts a chain of events that leads to him wanting to infiltrate their society and, and be part of them, but God continually isolates him and uses him against the Philistines. And so what happens, if you remember, at the bachelor party, he has this riddle. He had eaten honey out of the lion and not told anyone about it. And so he has this riddle that he poses, uh, you know, a little rhyme. And they, they can't figure it out, so they pressure the bride. The bride nags him and nags him and nags him. He lets his secret slip, tells her the answer. She tells the Philistines. They guess the riddle. And so he now owes them 30 suits of clothing. So he goes and kills 30 Philistines that are all of 42 regular and brings their suits and dumps it on the table and storms off. And calls her a cow while he's at it. Anyway, so he's still, you know, if you had not plowed with my heifer, if you hadn't plowed with my cow, you know, then you wouldn't know my riddle. And storms off. Well, while he's gone, the husband, uh, the, the father of the bride gives her to the best man. He returns carrying, you know, a bouquet of flowers and a young goat. And, um, and she's not there. And he freaks out. So he goes and he destroys their crops, you know, by putting the little jackals, tying them together and setting them on fire. And then, so the Philistines lose their crops, so they set the bride on fire, and her father burned down the house. So then, this escalates, and so then Samuel goes, and he kills a thousand of them. Remember that? Uh, with a, a jawbone, and he makes that little rap, because the word for donkey and the word for heap is the same. So I used a donkey's jawbone, and it's kind of like I made a heap with the heaps of the heap, the heap, heap thing. Remember, we did that last week in the Hebrew? And so he's just having fun with this at this point. And he's got this supernatural strength, and nobody understands where it's coming from. So that's where we find ourselves tonight. And we're going to see the downfall of Samson unfold in three scenes, three actions. And the first one is gate crashing in Gaza. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza. Just pause right there for a moment. Remember that the there's five main cities of the Philistines, and Gaza is one of them. So whenever there's a, an introduction here of where these things are happening, it's important simply to know that this is still happening in Philistia. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute and went into her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he rose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them 
to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. So that's our first scene here, this gate crashing in Gaza. Um, this is a phenomenal feat. You have to remember now, the, the, remember the chapter 15 ended with verse 20 that said he judged Israel um, in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. So kind of skip scene, this is 20 years later. So the young man in probably late teens, early 20s, he's got this thing with the bride and all that. Now for the, the last 20 years, he's been a, a thorn in the side of the Philistines. And he's constantly doing this type of thing. So this is just yet another snapshot of the type of thing that he does. Um, now, 20 years later, he's in his 40s. His strength is still unabated. He would have very long hair at this point. Um, he is incredibly strong. This, this feat here is supernatural. Uh, the, the gates of the city, I don't want you to think of, um, you know, like a little aluminum frame with some chicken wire on it. Uh, the gates of the city, as you'll see if you come with us to Israel, they, these are massive, massive structures. It's, it's a huge complex. And the, the wooden gate itself, the doors of the gate that mentions here, would have been too heavy for him to lift by himself, certainly. In fact, the bar that's just used to keep the doors are too heavy for one person to lift. The posts are dug into the ground. Just recently, our mailbox got hit and broken and we had to replace you know we just had to take the, the post out of the ground and put a new one in and that took most of the day <laughs> with uh, my sons and I chipping away at this thing um, until the stronger of the three of us uh, lifted it thanks for that Noah um, straight out of the ground and it just it took all day of, of trying to do that well here's a guy lifting two posts that have been dug deep into the ground with the doors still attached to them and the bar that would take two people to lift and he lifts it all up himself so the point here is that god's strength is still with him this is highly supernatural um this thing that he's carrying would weigh roughly the equivalent of a minivan and he puts it on his shoulders and then he hikes a marathon of 25 miles uphill and dumps it in Hebron. So basically he's stealing something from Philistia and taking it to Israel uphill on his back. And that story is just in there to show this is the type of thing Samson could do. God is at work here. And you can imagine the Philistines thinking, like, what are we going to do with this guy? I mean, it's been 20 years of this. He's just making a fool of us. So he goes and he finds this prostitute and he's in Gaza. And so the people are like, oh, we found him. We've got him. He's in the motel room. We're going to lie when he comes out. And then instead, you know, the gates are closed. And instead of ambushing him, he just lifts the gates and walks away. You can imagine them saying, well, I'm not touching him. <laughs> he's carrying a minivan, you know. I'm not the guy that's going to go attack him. And he just leaves them in the dust. So Samson is smarter and stronger than his opponents. He's evaded capture multiple times. He's repeatedly humiliated them. And you are supposed to be thinking at this point, this guy is unstoppable. He's a superhero. But what do superheroes have? They all have a weakness, don't they? And here, he must have a kryptonite somewhere. What is Samson's kryptonite? And the answer is found in verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Now, I once heard John MacArthur preach about this, and he mentioned Delilah and said, um, Delilah is just the worst character in the Bible. This is why nobody would 
ever name their daughter Delilah. I was sitting just a few pews away from my friend whose name is Delilah, and she was like, hey, and went to introduce herself to him afterwards. Um, I do have a friend whose name is Delilah, and uh, she lives in South Africa and is married to a pastor. So if you're listening to this, I love the name. But anyway, um, this is his weakness. He's always had a, shall we say, a sweet tooth for the honeys. Um, It's this prostitute that he sees. It's this Philistine woman that he sees. Here it's a um, Delilah that he falls in love with in Sorek in the valley. Um, This is his weakness, woman. And and frankly, this is a weakness of many men. That their, their thinking kind of goes out the window. His wife the Philistine, the, the prostitute from Gaza, and now Delilah, it all boils down to what he sees with his eyes. You know, he saw the woman in Timnah and went to his father and said, she looks good to me. Go and get her for me because she looks good. And we, we just read uh, in verse 1, Samson goes to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute. And here we have another, you know, a probably beautiful woman that he sees and falls in love with. This is where toxic masculinity begins. When men objectify women. To objectify somebody means to treat them like an object. This is very common among, this happens with women too, but especially with men, this is why we have NFL cheerleaders. This is why we have swimsuit models modeling for men's magazines. I don't know if you knew this or not, but men don't wear women's swimsuits. They don't need it in a magazine. This is why when you try to buy a set of tires, there's a woman with a bikini on the billboard. Bikinis have nothing to do with tires, but people want to sell stuff, and they just put the two together, and the men are like, oh, bikini, I want those tires, you know? Maybe there's a chance if I buy those tires, she'll come with them. I mean, the men aren't even thinking at this point. And why is this? Because men like to look at pretty things. The problem is, women aren't things. And yet men treat them like they're things when they objectify them. And they just treat them like an object for their own lust. Women are not objects. They're complex, intriguing, intelligent, emotional, confusing um, creatures of God that are made in His image. And when you think of a woman as an object then you are striking against the image of God. And that's not just an overstatement. Um, In Genesis 9, we're told that the punishment for an animal killing a human is that the animal needs to be executed, needs to be killed. And the punishment for another human killing a human is that that human needs to be executed. And the reason given in Genesis 9 is because you may never strike against the image of God. That's why if an animal kills a human, the animal must die. The animal does not carry the image of God. The human does. And the fact that you're an image bearer is what gives you your value in this universe that God has assigned to you. And so you may never strike against the image of God. But what's interesting to me is in Deuteronomy 22 in the legislation of Israel, a man raping a woman is equated with striking the image of God. Deuteronomy 22, 25. If in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, 
then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She's committed no offense, punishable by death. For this case is like that man is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. So Deuteronomy 22, verses 25 to 26 says that if a man rapes a woman, you kill the man. Not the woman. She didn't do anything wrong. She's the victim here. And it says this is exactly like a man killing another person. Striking against the image of God. And so that's what we learn from Samson. That if this is a weakness of yours, men, you need to get on this. You need to repent of this. The, the, the solution to this malady, this weakness, is to focus on the glory of God as manifest in other people, especially in women. That's gate crashing in Gaza. We move on to the next action as the this downfall of Samson unfolds, playing with fire. Playing with fire. Verse 5. So he meets this woman, Delilah, falls in love with her in verse 4. And in verse 5, the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. So stop here for a moment. So, so the, the, the Philistines are getting desperate. Here's this guy. They don't know what to do with him. Wherever he goes, he's just wreaking havoc, which is exactly what God wanted. But they are now just upping the ante. They're, they're finding the woman. They said, we have to get him through a woman. This is apparently the only way this is going to work. And so they're offering her this exorbitant amount of money. Like, we will empty the city treasuries to get rid of this guy. And so she's like, I really like Samson, but I really like Gucci better, you know, and my Ferrari and everything else I'd be able to buy. This is going to make me the richest woman in the world. Um, and so, sure, I'm on it. So immediately she just flips and she's against him. Because remember, that's what God wants. He wants him to be against the Philistines. Verse 6, so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. And at this point, you've got to be saying, Why? Why are you asking? <laughs> I mean, I understand you would be like, how come you are so strong? How do you do that? How do you lift a minivan and go for a, a marathon run? I mean, but that's not what she asks, is it? How are you so strong and how would I, I don't know, tie you up <laughs> so that I could hand you over, for example, to the Philistines? I mean, if one were to do that, how would one do that? And so Samson says to her in verse 7, well, if they bind me with fresh seven uh, seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So he's just playing with her at this point. He's like, yeah, yeah, sure, honey, I'll tell you my secret. Um, it's this weird thing, you know, the, the bow, a bowstring is what you use in a bow and arrow, and, and you get a fresh one, and you set it up, and then it dries, and then you can pluck it, and he's like, if you get seven of those and tie me up, then my mystical power will disappear. Um, and so, verse 8, the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, 
And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. So he tells her this little recipe for, for his strength, and she gets them. You know, Philistine lords, are, they're, they're funding this whole thing, so they're like, okay, we'll get them for you. They're hiding in the inner chamber. So she's obviously got a house that has more than one bedroom, um, one room, and so they're like, I don't know, in the pantry or whatever. And, um, and her and Samson are in the bedroom. And I'm not going to get too graphic here, but if you keep asking yourself, why, do, why does he keep letting her tie him up? Um, there's bedroom stuff going on over here, right? And so this is, in, from, from his point of view, this is a game that he's playing with her. Um, and he's, oh, I'll pretend to be all weak, and you pretend to be a Philistine, and we'll have some fun with that. But anyway, she's actually using this as an opportunity to test out if he's telling the truth, and if he is, there's Philistines in the, in the back room. And so each time this happens, you know, the Philistines are about to rush out, and she's like, nope, it didn't work. <laughs> It didn't work. Stay in there. Um, because he's just messing with her at this point. So verse 10. Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, Well, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. That's part of the little game. And the men lying in the ambush were in the, in the inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like thread. Now, when I was taught this story as a kid, every time in the picture book, the Philistines actually did attack him, and then he snapped it and beat them up. But that's not what the text says happened. They're about to. They're waiting for it, but she's testing him each time. So we have to give him a little credit. It's not like, I always thought, I don't get what's happening here because obviously every time he tells her, suddenly the Philistines appear when that's happening. But they, they're actually not appearing. They're just, they're just hiding there. We as the reader know. That's a dramatic irony. We as the reader know what's happening. But in Samson's mind, she's just, you know, trying to play this game and he's playing along with it. And, but then, you know, when things get serious, he just snaps it, and then she's like, oh, wait, you were, you were lying. And he's like, of course I was lying. Why would I tell you the secret of my strength? Um, but each time this is now escalating. So verse 14, uh, sorry, verse uh, 13. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head, with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and become like any other man. And slowly, his, it's getting a little closer to the truth. Now he's telling her, well, the secret to my strength does lie with my hair. Uh, but he tells her, if my hair is weaved into this, like, sewing machine thing, then I'll be stuck because my hair is important. Um, so while he slept, verse 14... Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin and the loom and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times. You've not told me where your great strength lies. You know, remember the first wife 
You only hate me. You do not love me. Tell me your riddle. Okay, I'll tell you. Boom. And then she goes and spills the beans. So there was some foreshadowing there, and it's happening again. And verse 16 says, when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. Gentlemen, anyone ever had that experience? Not your wife, of course, but one of the previous ladies you were dating, just nagging and nagging and nagging, day after day after day, and you're just vexed to death. And you're like, okay, fine. I'll fix the leak in the roof. Oh, wait, that wasn't a leak? That was just you? Okay, what is it that you're nagging about? I mean, so he's just, eventually he's just like, okay, I'm done with this thing. This is obviously something coming in between them. There's this secret that he won't tell her. And so verse 17, he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. And if my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and like any other man. Now, this is true. We know this to be true. But if you didn't know the story of Samson, you would be in the same boat Samson's in. And Samson, I don't think, knows how true this is. I mean, he's being honest with her. The text says that he's bearing his heart, and she can tell because this time she gets the Philistines involved. Um, she can tell, no, this time he's telling me the truth. And he is telling the truth, and he does know that he'd be breaking the vow. But I still think that Samson didn't know that he would lose his strength. And we'll actually see in the text. We'll, we'll see that proven. But before we go there, let me tell you about the creator of Batman and Catwoman. His name is Bob Kane. And he once offered this insight into his characters. He said... I felt that women were feline characters and men were more like dogs. While dogs are faithful and friendly, cats are cool and detached and unreliable. I felt much warmer with dogs around me. Cats are as hard to understand as women are. Men feel more sure of themselves with male friends than with a woman. You always need to keep women at arm's length. We don't want anyone taking over our souls and women have a habit of doing that. So here's a love-resentment thing with women. I guess women will feel that I'm being chauvinistic to speak this way, you think. Um, but I do feel that I've had better relationships with male friends than with women. With women, once the romance is over, somehow they never remain my friends. I think that that gives way more insight into Bob Kane and his psyche than in his characters. But it's supposed to explain the, the tension between Batman and Catwoman. But I also think it explains what's going on here with Samson and Delilah. Samson doesn't, he's never had a real relationship with a woman. Never. It's always based on the superficiality. And his parents, right in the beginning, said to him, why don't you marry one of, you know, the Israelite girls, like you're meant to, like Yahweh wants you to. And he refused. And remember how distressing that would have been for his parents, but the narrator told us, for they did not know that it was of the Lord. God wanted this scenario to brew because this is what leads to his success as a judge of Israel. And just by the way, Samson is the last judge of Israel. This is the last time God raises up one of these deliverers. And so Samson is being a picture of Israel. Israel refuses to do the right thing. Israel refuses to separate herself from her oppressors in the same way that Samson refuses to separate himself from from his oppressors. 
And yet God is driving this action the whole time and using, and this is important, using Samson's weakness as a strength. All of this is about God's relationship with Samson, God's relationship with Israel, and God's relationship with us. And when you take pride in what God has given you, and you don't use it as a gift that's a stewardship that God has given you, but you use it for your own sinful purposes, you need to remember God can take that away from you at any time, as we're about to see. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. They know that this time it's for real. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. By the way, whenever it talks about seven locks, that just means all of his hair. That's what that means, all, all of it. So, and also in the flannel graph, I was taught that she, you know, there's a picture of her there with her little scissors and a little razor, but she's just, she's got him asleep, and when he's like in deep sleep, another guy comes so the Philistines are there. They're active. They shave his head. And then what happens? Um, verse 19, she made him sleep on her knees. She called a man, had him shave off the seven locks of his head, and she began to torment him. She starts teasing him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that Yahweh had left him. So it's not that he doesn't know that his hair has been cut. That would be impossible. He knows that he's, his hair shaven. But he sees that now there are Philistines. This is for real. And he doesn't know that his strength is gone. She knows. She can tell immediately just from the way that he's, you know, obviously there's some sort of physicality here. She's teasing him. She's shoving him. She's waking him up, shaking him. And she's used to doing that with someone that just feels like, you know, a rock. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. This guy's weak now. But he doesn't even know that. And so the Philistines are there. He goes out. He has no idea that this has happened. And now think of why this is. The vow that was made on his behalf, the Nazarite vow, just like the vow was made on kind of on behalf of John the Baptist, the Nazarite vow, he's grown up with, and he has slowly but surely over, these, over the course of our story been chipping away at breaking that vow. Remember, he's not allowed to eat any unclean food, but what's his little riddle? He found a swarm of bees had made honey in a dead lion. That's unclean. Eating something off a dead carcass is unclean. So he broke his vow. Nothing happened. He was still strong. Then he has his bachelor's party. He has this big drinking party where the riddle happens. He's still strong. He's not allowed to be near a dead person, but he gets near 30 of them. He actually kills them, strips them. He does this over and over, eventually standing on a pile of a thousand dead people, still strong. But there's one aspect of his vow he hasn't broken yet, and that's his haircut. And he just broke it. And that is the final straw. That is the distinctive item about the vow. That's the one thing that everyone can see. Everything else is kind of a, a, a private breaking of his vow. But this is a public breaking of his vow. And his strength leaves him. Do you sometimes feel in your life that 
the sin you're engaged in can't be that bad because God hasn't stopped it yet? Well, I've never been caught. You know, I know I've been cheating on my taxes, but my business keeps flourishing. God's, God's still blessing my business. Yes, I'm engaged in this private sexual sin, but God's still blessing my marriage. Yes, I'm pilfering the till at work, but God's still blessing my job. I keep getting promoted. And you start convincing yourself that because you haven't been caught yet, because God hasn't punished you yet, that's a sign of his blessing. I know I shouldn't be doing this with my boyfriend. I know I shouldn't be doing this with my girlfriend. But look how God is blessing our relationship. That's exactly what Samson's saying. I broke my Nazarite vow before. I stayed strong. But the application for us is this. Never let God's patience and his forbearance be confused with the sign of his blessing. Don't let his patience and his forbearance with you be confused as a sign of his blessing. It's not blessing. It's mercy. He's not saying, I'm endorsing what you're doing. He's saying, I'm giving you time to repent. But that time will run out. Thank him for his patience, but repent. Don't take advantage of it. And so he says, I will go out as other times and shake myself free, but he did not know that Yahweh had left him. In verse 21, the Philistine seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison like an animal. But verse 2 ends with a little bit of hope. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. That part's for next week. Samson doesn't go from being an invincible superhero to a bold, blind, beaten loser overnight. This is a slow progression that eventually leads to this final fall. And anyone who hasn't had their eyes gouged out can see this coming all the way from verse 6. Delilah said to Samson, please let me know what your great strength lies and how you might be bound that anyone could subdue you. And Samson is in a dangerous situation, but he refuses to back out of it because he's in love with this woman. And all of us can see this coming, and we're just saying, Samson, what are you doing? Your, your girlfriend keeps asking you, what's the secret of your strength? And she's playing this whole pretend the Philistines are upon you game, and she gets super upset when you don't tell it to her. What do you think's going to happen when you tell her? Everything else you've told her, she's tried on you. You tell her about the bowstring, you tell her about the new ropes, you tell her about the weaving thing, and she tries all of them. Now you tell her, you know, if you shave my head, I'm going to lose my power. What do you think she's going to do next? And this is where we learn a very important principle. Sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. I have seen this in my ministry and my own life over and over and over and over. You all have people coming for counsel. And they'll tell you, I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this, and I did this, and now I've got this huge problem. 
and you want to say, yeah, why did you do this and this and this and this and this that causes this huge problem? They don't know. Well, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah, I was in college and, you know, I was getting drunk a lot and I was experimenting with drugs and I was sleeping around and now I'm pregnant. Yeah. What did you think was going to happen? <laughs> well, I did it for so long and nothing happened. I thought God was, you know, what do you think? So? What's wrong with you? Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says this. Sin makes one dark in the intellectual parts. <laughs> Sometimes we say that to our kids. Sin is making you dark in the intellectual parts. That's a very tasteful way of saying sin makes you stupid. You see this when a person, it happens often in relationships as it does here. They pick the wrong person and everyone can see it except them because there's this sinful desire in them that's driving them. According to the FBI, most modern-day bank robberies are, quote, unsophisticated and unprofessional crimes, unquote, committed by young male repeat offenders who apparently don't know the first thing about their business. For example, it's reported that in spite of widespread use of surveillance cameras, 76% of bank robbers use no disguise. 86% never studied the bank before robbing it. And 95% of bank robbers have no plans to conceal the money. So there's an example. Jack Schreiner, in November 2001, November 30th, he's, you know, he was 30 years old, sorry. He strolled into a branch of a bank in New York City at 10.30 a.m., and he handed a note to the cashier demanding money. She complied and gave all the cash that she had available, $7,791. He walks out of the bank. He gets away with it. That was Monday. He doesn't know what to do with the money. He decides to open a savings account. He goes back to the same bank on Friday, walks up to the cashier and wants to open an account. He got arrested. And you've got to think, at least go to a different bank. <laughs> but sin makes you stupid. That's only explanation. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says this, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you don't fear God, you're not following His ways, you haven't done the first thing. You're just going to be stupid. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's fools that despise wisdom and instruction. In any situation, if you fear God and desire to worship Him, you're starting to think wisely. If you ever ask, what would God want me to do in this situation? What would be best for God's glory? What does God's word say? You're at least heading in the right direction. Sometimes life is full of very difficult decisions, and you need help, and you need counsel, and you need someone who knows the word, and there's nothing wrong with that. You are not stupid if you make an appointment with somebody who knows the Bible and says, please help me apply scripture to my situation. I don't know what to do here. That is wisdom. When you say... I'm going to try a whole bunch of stuff on my own that's the exact opposite of what God says to do and see how that fares. That's stupid. Romans 1.21 For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. It's another word for stupid. Futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. People who say there's no God 
Psalm 16, verse 1 as well. The fool says in his heart there's no God. You can't take any intellectual counsel, any wise counsel from a person who doesn't even believe that God exists. They look at the world, they see the design, they're like, something must have not designed this. If you don't fear God, you don't even acknowledge him, your, your thinking is just futile. You lose the faculty of discernment. And so some people think of Delilah as the bad guy here, or she's the gold-digging, hair-cutting, conniving bad guy. But the text goes out of its way to show this haircut is Samson's fault. He has had every, every opportunity to realize this girl ain't no good for me. He tricks himself because he plays with fire and he thinks he's not going to get burnt. Do you ever do that? You mess around with dangerous things and you don't think there's going to be a consequence? Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burnt? Answer, no. Don't fool yourself. Learn from Samson. One final point. I'll just wrap this up quickly. I like to call this dating the dead. That's another mistake you made. Dating the dead. Look at verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Here's his kryptonite. In chapter 14, we were told he sees a woman. In chapter 16, we're told he sees a prostitute. But he rejects God's law. He rejects the counsel of his parents. And every one of these relationships is with a person that is a pagan Philistine who is against Yahweh. Deuteronomy 7 verse 1 outlawed this. When Yahweh brings you into the land that you're entering, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn away your sons from following me and to serve other gods. And you say, well, that was the Old Testament. Yes. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, Satan? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians 6 has this principle, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's not limited to marriage and, and um, relationships, but it certainly includes them. I think it would include business relationships in some situations. It's anytime you're getting into an enterprise with an unbeliever, knowing that their priorities are different from yours, this is going to be bad for both of you. So this goes back to a law in Deuteronomy that said that you should not yoke an ox with a donkey. You can yoke two oxen together to pull a plow. You can yoke two donkeys together to pull a plow. But if you yoke an ox and a donkey, the one is far stronger than the other. It's going to be cruel for them both. The ox is going to get hurt trying to pull the plow with a donkey that can't keep up. The donkey's going to get hurt. Don't do it. It's immoral. And Paul says, let's bring that principle into the spiritual realm. You have a believer dating an unbeliever. What do you think is going to happen? You're dating the dead. It's like an ox being yoked to a dead donkey. You're going to get hurt. We see this with Samson. And so often what happens is, you know, boy meets girl, and let's say he's a believer and she's not, and you say, I would never marry an unbeliever, but I, we're just dating, and I'm going to lead her to the Lord. We call this missionary dating. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I'm going to be the missionary and date the unbeliever, bring her to church, and lead her to the Lord. 
Well, that's a gamble, firstly, because you don't know if she's elect or not, and you just dating her is not going to help. And I would go as far as to say that you dating her is detrimental to her salvation. Because the very first thing that you're teaching this unbeliever is that you don't believe the Bible. That you think you're wiser than the wisdom of God. And the only reason she doesn't know that is she doesn't know this passage yet. But what you're telling her is, my attraction to you is more important than my relationship with my Savior. Because he wouldn't want me with you and I don't care. That's what you're telling her. What you should rather say to her is, I really, really like you, but my entire life and identity is wrapped up in my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I would love to invite you to go to church with me so that you can see how I worship and I will share the gospel with you. But you and I cannot form any type of close relationship. We cannot change our Facebook status until God is pleased. Because that is the only thing that I really care about. Otherwise, you're just dating the dead. This applies even to marriages. In a sense, 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if the husband dies, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes only in the Lord. In other words, only another believer. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if, verse 15 says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. 1 Corinthians 7, 15. So what that's saying is, if you're already married to an unbeliever, don't get divorced. If the unbeliever is willing to stay married to you. If they leave you, there's really nothing you can do about that then yes, you can get divorced and you can get remarried, but you must marry another believer. So let me just leave you with this application. If you are single, especially if you're single, if you're married, stay married. That's a pretty simple application. If you are single, get people in your life whose wisdom you trust before you get into a relationship. Somebody that you know loves you, who knows the word of God and wants to apply it to your life in a way that's beneficial for you. And when that person says, sweetie, this guy's not for you, listen to them. They have more discernment because their emotion's not involved. They love you. They have biblical wisdom. They have more discernment than you do. You are being driven Possibly simply by emotion, which is not sinful, but emotion clouds your judgment. But it's also likely you're being driven by sin. You're fearing being single, or there's a lust attraction there, or whatever it is, and that sin is making you stupid. And so you need to go to people that are thinking clearly and trust them. And the best time to pick those people is before your emotions get involved and the sin makes you blind. And the problem with sin is that it promises pleasure, but it brings suffering and death. John Owen said, do you mortify, meaning do you kill sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And that's what we'll see next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, praise you for guiding us into all truth through your spirit. And we, we're thankful for this word that you've given us. I pray that you would help us to have discernment.
that you would help us to have wisdom. Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our minds, that you would turn the lights on. That if there's anyone here in any kind of uh, sin pattern that they are involved in, that they know you are convicting them of, that you would give them the strength to repent of that. That they would turn their back on the sin that would lead them to despair. And that you would grant them a trust in you, knowing that you are good and that you provide for us at the right time. I pray for the single people, Lord. We're so thankful for um, what you're doing in their lives. I pray that you would grant them great wisdom and joy as they obey you and see how you provide for them in their relationships. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.